Welcome to this bonus episode of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the film It's a Wonderful Life. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where mental health insights are our medication of choice. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. Now, this episode is slightly different from our usual format. We won't be discussing a book this time around. Our next featured book will come in a fortnight. Instead, this is a bonus episode and we'll be discussing the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, our intention is to continue making bonus episodes alongside our regular content, but in future, these will be only available to our Patreon subscribers. And if you would be interested in supporting us on Patreon, you just need to check out patreon.com forward slash The Reading Cure. And both membership tiers that are available there will have access to bonus episodes as and when we make those. We're viewing the bonus episodes as a chance to experiment a bit. And so, for example, we have a number of other iconic films lined up that we're intending to cover in the coming months. But turning now, though, to the movie that we'll be focusing on in this episode, It's a Wonderful Life was released in 1946 and was produced and directed by veteran filmmaker Frank Capra. The film has been described as a fantasy of goodwill and the plot is based on a novella entitled The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Dorenstern, which was published three years prior to the film It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra was a self-made Italian-American immigrant whose own life story was one of dogged perseverance in the face of real hardship and which led one film critic to describe him as the American dream personified. By 1946, Capra was on the top of his game, having previously enjoyed enormous success with films such as It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of George Bailey, played by Hollywood legend Jimmy Stewart. George is a man who has continually sacrificed his own dreams to look after his community, the town of Bedford Falls, and who has reached a crisis point on Christmas Eve due to the disappearance of $8,000 from his building and loans enterprise. He is saved from the brink by the intervention of Clarence, his guardian angel, who shows George what life would have been like had he never been born. Upon realising how much he still wants to live, George returns home to find that his family, friends and neighbours have rallied together to raise the money needed to rescue him from prosecution, and in so doing, show just how much they love and value him for the protection and kindness he has bestowed upon them throughout their lives. More than seven decades after this iconic film was first released, it remains as popular as ever with audiences, and particularly, of course, at Christmas time. So the first question tonight, Alec, that we're going to discuss was this this great film, It's a Wonderful Life. What do you think it is that has made it so enduringly popular as a kind of Christmas holiday staple? Well, perhaps we should mention to our listeners, first of all, that when this movie came out, it actually wasn't a commercial success. It was only when it had gone into syndication that it became this Christmas favourite that we all know and love. Yes. Um, so it, it took a while, actually, for it to achieve the status 
that 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 it has, uh, which is interesting. Uh, for some reason, after the war, uh, people just didn't seem to take to this movie too mm-hmm. much. But I think it might have been decades later that it was uh, redeemed. This is something that Jimmy Stewart had mentioned in his interview with Mike, you know, Michael Parkinson. Yeah. That that it did actually achieve that status with time. But I think we can sort of see why it would have achieved that status with time. I mean, one of the reasons is that it is a a classic Christian Christmas tale. Uh, George Bailey is... uh, you know, the epitome of altruism, someone who has dedicated his life to Bedford Falls and the residents in Bedford Falls. And and he illustrates as good as anyone I can think of the, the, the spirit of loving thy neighbour. Because for George Bailey, the whole of Bedford Falls are his neighbours, are his brothers that he looks out for and he dedicates his life to, it. so it's very, to them. So it's very much in the the spirit of Christianity. So I can see why it would be a staple of uh, Christmas time. Yeah. Another reason that, that, that is a bit more subtle is that this is also, as, as you know, a morality tale in that good triumphs over evil, evil being represented by Mr. Potter in this movie. So it's a tale of redemption and of good winning out. Uh, where it's really interesting is that the redemption is actually George Bailey being saved from himself. And this is something that we could look at in more detail when we talk about his character, is is that he lacks faith in himself. He lacks faith in the goodness of his character and the goodness of his actions. And he actually needs to be saved from himself, which is uh, one of the most interesting and poignant things about this movie. Yeah, I, th- I think um, absolutely. I think you've you've made some great points about it there, Alec. And, and as you said, we'll we'll come come back to to the issue of George Bailey and, yeah. and this this journey that he's on um, a little bit later. I, I would just like to pick you up really on the on the first issue about the film and its success, because certainly um, looking at this this film now from a kind of more modern perspective, it's it's clearly a, a beautifully made film by a, a master craftsman, which I think Frank Capra yes. was, and um, it's. It's interesting that it was this 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 uh, you know box office flop at the time. It obviously did very well with the critics. It had I think five Oscar nominations when it came out. But as you described, it was maybe something about this you know immediate aftermath of World War Two. I don't know if it was the fact that it's quite dark in some ways. This film, you know, it's it's an interesting blend of of dark and comic and warm and you know all sorts of complex things going on. But obviously, something about it, yeah, it didn't hit the spot at the time, but it has stood the test of time so remarkably well. You know, that such an old it film has, you know, it has. I think I think you're right that that um, Capra is a master craftsman, and this is probably him articulating his artistic vision. Him is most eloquent in articulating his artistic vision uh, there. I mean, what you say about it being dark, I mean, that makes total sense. Uh, well, having yep. dark elements, almost film noir elements as part of the movie. Um, whether that's the case, I don't really know. I've actually got a quote here from Barbara Deming, who wrote a a brilliant book about 1940s film called okay. Running Away From Myself. Uh, a great, great book, but not very well known. But what she says about movies 
uh, from that period is that they depict, and this is the quote, a nightmare realm where visions tantalize but deceive. What seems substantial may prove insubstantial. What promises life may bring death. Nothing is sure. That is her summary of a lot of 1940s movies. <laughs> and uh, so you can see if she's right, and I think she is, if you go through her book and all the movies that she she covered, she watched hundreds of movies in that period. Yep. And she says that they're quite nightmarish when you look at them closely and critically. Uh, so, yeah, this wouldn't have been that different. Uh, the darkness doesn't quite explain away why it why it wasn't popular at the time well indeed i mean it's in, it's i mean it's an odd comparison in a way but i mean at the you mentioned the film noir elements potentially yeah. and you know the the extended flashback sequence at the start of the film is quite like the classic robert mitchum movie out of the past you yeah. know where where you know yeah. where a, a character's in difficult circumstances and we have yes. this protracted narrative to explain it so there, there is a kind of strange mixture and it did um, it did strike me as well that the 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 complex mixture of elements that capra's put into this film make it seem almost a bit like a play to me you know the the tragedy comedy the you yeah. know you, we've, we've mentioned darkness but you know for example, the scene where young George has um, has defied his boss, the chemist, who's in a state of mm. despair at losing his son. And then, you know, he hasn't handed over the medication because he knows it has poison in it. And then the chemist hits him on his sore ear and you see, the, see his ear bleeding. Yeah. You know, it's quite dark, you know, this. And, and of course, then there's the kind of moment of realisation where there's then the affection comes out, you know, in the, the chemist. And you see he's this kind of flawed, mm. wounded, but still fundamentally decent man actually you know he does care about george but he's at such a low point so yeah it's really um real in that way you know really just the depth you would expect in a great play um i think comes through this film yeah i mean it is amazing the the tonal variety of the movie and it is amazingly brought about by jimmy stewart because the most wonderful thing about this wonderful movie is his performance, the range within that. Uh, You know, he's comic when he needs to be comic. Uh, He is despairing at the point where he needs to be despairing. He shows his love intensely uh, at key points in the movie. Uh, There is a little scene where he's standing outside his house and he hears the train go past and the look of longing yeah, on his face. I mean, it is one of the best moments I've ever seen <laughs> in a movie. It's one of the greatest performances that yeah. I've ever seen. So, yeah, we certainly have to pay tribute to him because uh, yeah. he really knocked it out of the park in I- this movie. It required a lot from the actor and he delivered, uh, you know, amazingly. I, I completely um, agree. I mean, I think the casting... It- issue is actually an interesting one because just in preparing for this I was reading a little bit about the you know the genesis of this film and as it was Mm -hmm. being the concept was being passed around Hollywood various writers actually before Capra were working on it apparently at one point Cary Grant was being considered for the Mm -hmm. leading role but Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting as you say Jimmy Stewart it seems just absolutely perfect for this role um it's interesting actually this slightly leads on to the second issue we're going to discuss because obviously jimmy stewart has often been seen as the kind of hollywood everyman 
you know, mm. uh, just the, the the person you go to to have a kind of really identifiable everyman type character. But obviously, George Bailey could be seen as that to some degree, but he's also a very exceptional person. You know, he seems to be yes. both to me. Um, so I, I was wondering, what do you think? Would you see his kind of the selfless choices he makes in this film um, as we get to know him? Do you think that is is a, from a character who's been produced by just the ideal kind of environment, or do you think this is really more a statement about this man's kind of unique, innate qualities? How would you read George Bailey? Well, I think it's actually a bit of both. Uh, regarding the innate aspect of it, this is something that his father invokes when they're sitting at the dinner table, and his father says comparing him to one of his brothers, he said, George, you were born older. <laughs> yeah. So he, he is basically invoking this idea that George is more mature, more watchful, supportive, empathic than most um, for their age. And I think a really good example, something that you mentioned earlier on, was how he handled that incident with old man Gower when he was about nine years of age, because yeah. he notices that that he's put the poison capsules, uh, you know, in that bottle to give to a to give to a patient, and he saves old man Gower's skin. He's only nine years of age. Yeah, it's absolutely. remarkable how watchful and empathic he is. I think that's why they included it in the movie to show that this is no ordinary person because. Nine-year-olds generally wouldn't be looking out uh, for others uh, to to that extent, unless I'm doing them a disservice here. <laughs> so I think he is, you know, very morally precocious. And you could say that when he becomes an adult, he actually looks out for the poison that is Potter and ensures it doesn't inf infect the town. That's so he true, is the yeah. person that is looking out for others. He's done that from a young age. So I think there is an innate quality there of empathy, uh, sympathy, support, uh, watchfulness, care, really. Th this is, a, this is a, a person that even as a kid cares deeply about others. So there's definitely an innate dimension there. But I think he's also been shaped by his environment, that's no surprise, because if you look at uh, his father, you could say that he is conscripted into his father's life. Not by choice, but it's like a conscription, isn't it, really? Uh, I don't want to say it was like entering the army for George Bailey, because he was the best man to do the job, and it's not as though he wouldn't want to have done it at all, but he wasn't you know, completely accepting that role no. but his father is like the role model his vision of the good i mean as a kid he says you know pop i think you're the biggest man in town yeah as a as yeah. an adult he says uh that i th i think that you you know you're a great person so his idea of what it is to be a good person has been deeply shaped by his father and his father's life and his father's vacation uh, very interestingly, though, while he feels that about his father, he didn't want to become his father, and yet he has to, and this is a key part of the drama. Yeah, I would agree with that um, assessment there. I think he, he, yeah, there is the, the both the temperamental and the environmental at play there. I think I think that's true because he, he has a very clearly defined character, as you as you described. He has he's a kind interesting mixture of being both 
compassionate but warm, considerate, you know, outgoing but also thoughtful of others. A real, a real mixture. And yeah, the the scene you you referred to where we see the family dinner when he's young, when he's you know mm-hmm. youngish, um, and his brothers there, and so on. You, you get a sense of a family that are quite that are supportive of each other, that are caring, that are sociable. You know, there seems mm. to be a lot of healthy things happening in that environment. Um, it struck me as well that I think Capra is is making really a statement about the importance of the individual, actually, in terms of um, the shaping of George Bailey, because the, the nightmare scenario of, of Pottersville that, that George mm-hmm. experiences later in the film, you know, it shows how much this one individual was so integral to, you know, this community being this this wholesome place compared to what it could have been. So that's really, a, to me, a strong statement of the role of this kind of innately um, good person and how how much he, you know, other people shaped in similar communities weren't nearly as important to the health of it all as, as George, you know. So obviously yes, he, yeah. he as an individual is is, is, is key. Um, obviously... Well, as, I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I, I think this is a, a key part of the message that Capra wants to convey, which is that the ordinary may be the extraordinary. Because if, if, you, if you compare George's life on paper to his brother's life. You know, he receives the the Congress Medal of uh, Honor and things like that. And then Sam Wainwright that becomes a captain of industry. George yes. isn't looking too good in comparison there. But uh, the, the, the movie proves how exceptional he is and how exceptional and wonderful his life has been. And that he is actually the richest man in town. There's the irony and the depth there. Potter is, on paper, the richest man in town, but he's very poor, in a sense, too. And George is precisely rich in the way that Potter is poor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, I mean, obviously the the film is very overtly religious, of course, and, and the premise that you know, different in a way. What's right for George is not right for other characters. You know, it's it's almost like his place on earth to be one that sacrifices his his own wishes for the good of others. That's what he's there to do. And others actually don't have to do that. You know, others that are maybe you know not aside from Potter. You know, others that are decent characters within the film. You know, they simply don't have that put upon them. But for George, that's what he's there for. As it's kind of well, yes, here. yeah. Um, and 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 he is reluctant about that. That's something that we could talk about later on, no doubt. Is that he is he has a reluctance about being elected to that role. But as you say, the movie makes it very clear that nobody else could do that role. Certainly, no one else is good as him. I mean, you've got Uncle Billy, who's very well meaning. But yes. makes a tremendous gaffe at a key point in the movie. Yeah. Uh, clearly, he could not run the building alone. Um, it had to be. It had to be George. Yes. I mean, even though he did ultimately want to do it, uh, he was the right man for that job. As long as 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 long as he believed in the building alone as a means for ordinary people to have a decent life, he had he had to step up and take up that role as as guardian of the community really uh, against you know the poison that that is represented by Porter yes and I, I thought it was quite an you know um, Capra's films are often 
seen as a kind of depiction of the American dream. And I thought it was quite mm. an interesting one, this, the way that the American dream here is fused with this morality, you know, this Christian mm. perspective, actually, whereby, as you just suggested, he becomes the richest man in town. But, say, unlike maybe subsequent Hollywood movies that show an American dream kind of storyline, he doesn't become rich, he doesn't become a celebrity in that sense. He's obviously loved and revered in the community, but it's a very different kind of American dream, actually, although it is an American dream. You know, it's it's this this sense that it's not about wealth. It's absolutely not about that. You know, it was an interesting no, message no. there from Capra, actually. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a very good point, that it's not your typical American dream where an individual rises from inauspicious beginnings and, and then becomes this great success um, yeah. in a material sense and in a celebrity sense. In fact, it's quite the opposite because George's uh, life, the trajectory of his life is, is totally within Bedford Falls. And yet I think what Capra wanted to highlight is that community was the most important thing, really. Uh, looking out for each other, caring about each other, supporting each other. This is what was a key part of his ethic. And and his view would be that if you did not contribute in that way, you may be very rich, but you would be very poor. Uh, and you, you might recall that, uh, that George's father says that... Uh, if Potter has a soul, even. So there's this idea that, uh, as you say, it's invoking Christian ideas too, that uh, that if, you, if you're actually like a vampire living off of the community, but not contributing it as, as hyper-capitalist Potter is like, uh, then you are very poor in some sense too. And this is something that we can look at later on, because I think it is such a a key psychological point as well. Well, indeed, yeah. I mean, we can, we'll come, yeah, to that very issue of Potter's psychology. Yeah. Um, ju yeah. yeah, just the final point to add on that. I think it is quite interesting that, you know, as, as you've you've described it there, this this critique of a kind of unhealthy vampiric capitalism in, in the form of Potter, you know, that this yeah. has actually come from Capra, who is generally, I think, described as a quite a conservative Republican, actually, yes. you know, and, yeah. and we, as, as we've alluded to previously, you see the, the individualistic outlook in a moral sense, and you see the religious elements actually coming mm -hmm. together there. But yeah, he's definitely more, I think, in the sort of Lincoln than the kind of Reagan kind of school of, yeah. of Republicanism there, really, because it's definitely, he, he's not comfortable actually with this idea that people make a fortune and don't share it you know so he's, he's not that kind of conservative actually there you know it's not uh, no the, um no. so i mean that's an excellent point he's not a liberty he's not on the libertarian right no, uh, no it would have been interesting to watch this movie with ronald reagan and margaret thatcher because they they, they probably would have thought that potter was much maligned in <laughs> in this movie but yeah capra as you say was a republican and there is a traditional a traditionalist bent to his uh, way of looking at the world. Yep. And I think we see that also in John Hughes' movies, who was also a Republican, the emphasis on family and community. I mean, he he is a, a spiritual son, in a way, of Capra. When we look at Home Alone and movies like that, how much he extols community and reintegrating people into that community too. So John Hughes as a Republican, I think, had the same uh, uh, 
outlook there and a similar artistic vision in some regard too. Yeah, I think that's a good a good connection to draw. Actually, yeah, the, the John Hughes link because you're absolutely yeah. right. He's one of the in that sense. He, there is a real fellowship there with Capra. Um, yes, yeah, and and yeah, it is. It's all about community. But it, it's interesting, isn't it? That it's communities that are built by good people. You know, it's not this. Mm. It's not a collectivist view either. Really, it's no, not about people no. like Bailey being pro. You know, say you know, in a very kind of statist way. You know, a kind of construction of their their education and their morality it's just more it's families and small communities and people the good people really contributing in those communities so um, yeah exactly and i think that's another great point is, is that it's not it's not the state from afar no constructing these communities and, and we could see why because the danger with that is that they don't really understand the town and so they they impose a structure on the town rather than it actually being built up by the town members that understand the town are part of the town uh, understand the, the the citizens of that town Just maybe moving on to the to the third question, then, because we've alluded to Potter and his psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such an intriguing character, and as as has been pointed out, there is a kind of um, there's there's he's reminiscent in some ways of Scrooge, of course, because I believe the book from which It's a Wonderful Life was derived was itself, and you know, a, a sort of homage to the the Scrooge story. Um, what, what do you so in, in the case of Potter, though, unlike Scrooge, he doesn't have any kind of moral epiphany. He remains a villain throughout this film. Mm-hmm. There's no sense that he comes to terms with himself. So what would you make of the psychology of a, of a Potter then, Alec? Well, I think the psychology of Potter is uh, somewhat limited by the function that he performs in the story. As yes. I said earlier on, there is there are tonal shifts and tonal elements that are different to each other in this movie. And to some extent... Potter is not quite a pantomime villain, but he lacks the nuance of portrayal that we get with George Bailey. And I think the reason for that is that Capra wants to show in a very direct and stark form what he thinks is a threat to the American way of life. And this is what Potter represents. So he he is not granted or dignified with any inner conflicts in the way that Scrooge was in okay. his story. Yep. Not as far as I can see. I don't see any issue that Potter has with the, the life that he's leading. He has no qualms about the life that he's leading, as far as we can tell in the story. So he, he is a secondary character, and he is a character without inner conflict. So his psychology is going to be naturally more limited, and less nuanced than George Bailey, who does have his conflicts, does have his uh, tensions within his psyche. Having, having said that, I do think that if we were to talk about Potter's psychology, we could still discuss it and explore it. And there's a number of ways of doing this. I mean, I don't want to infringe on Todd Grandy's turf territory here but we could look at Mr. Potter through the lens of the ocean 
okay. you know, the big five traits of openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Yep. And I think what we would see with, with Potter is that he is low in openness, so he's very fixed and prejudicial in his outlook. We can see that he's cynical, uh, he's, he's, he's prejudicial against what he thinks is the the mob. That's how he describes uh, the residents of Bedford Falls. So he's someone that that doesn't think outside the box. That's quite for sure. So he's not high in openness. Conscientiousness, he, he makes the rules. He doesn't really follow <laughs> rules by and large. So he, he would be low in conscientiousness. He is He's very unscrupulous. We see that, don't we? You know, that he keeps... He, I had someone high in conscientiousness or medium in conscientiousness would not keep that $8,000, would they? <laughs> uh, Indeed, so, yeah. And also the way he lives his life because he he, he wants to suck it every penny out of uh, the Bedford Falls citizens' hands really. So he's low in conscientiousness. In terms of ex extroversion, he will be an introvert, I'm sure, because he leads quite a hermit, reclusive life. So very low in, in extroversion. In other words, a, a real introvert. In terms yes. of agreeableness, he will be low in agreeableness. That's why he's so cynical and disputatious and distrusting. And then he's high in neuroticism. Because, you know, he, he gets easily irritable, uh, he's greedy, uh, he, he, he can't be at peace until he has everything within his clutches. So if we saw him in terms of the big five traits in psychology, that would be his psychological profile. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, it's funny. I, I kind of uh, came at this one from a slightly different angle there. Um, and it's funny because you mentioned that as a character, Potter, I think you're right, like Scrooge doesn't display the sort of sense of being conflicted in an inner sense. Um, I was, I think I was still um, thinking about uh, our Karen Hornai episode yeah. previously where we looked at our, her book, Our Inner Conflicts, because I, I, it kind of struck me that you, you, you know, one way you could read a character like a Potter or the Potters that there are is out there would be somebody who is maybe in the moving against category. Yes, yeah. um, you know, he, he's obviously somebody who has repressed his loving, affectionate dimension, and he's he's emphasised the aggressive, domineering aspects of him. So, um, for example, that you know he's strikingly absent in empathy. Obviously, we we see, for example, um, in the scene where George Bailey's father has just died, Potter, you know, gives a few platitudes and immediately wants to dissolve the building and loans company. You know, so there's absolutely mm. not an ounce of genuine uh, sorrow or sympathy at all there. And it's also striking that these elements of his character are kept in check by this cynical worldview that he espouses, whereby he, he has this, this very cliched interpretation of others as just weak, corrupt, needy creatures. Um, he says to George Bailey, well, of course, when George is in his moment of crisis, you know, go and get help from the rabble that you love so much. You know, he doesn't. And of course, actually, sadly, George potentially lets this this infect his mindset because he doesn't actually think that maybe he could get help from others. You know, he's he's almost going to commit suicide until, of course, Clarence, you know, uh, 
pulls him back from the brink and it's his wife that goes out and, and actually gets the help for him but but yeah and t- so but coming back to Potter um, I think yeah you could imagine somebody who maybe had felt that they were at risk of exploitation by others very early in life and had developed this hard um, cynical uh, persona and buried their their more affectionate um, dimensions and and therefore you know repress and project the real the kind of more infantile dependent traits out onto onto the community and everybody else. So um, that was my yes, kind of yeah. Karen Horney type type reading of Potter. But um, but I do I do take your point. I think it, I think we are well, essentially I mean, dealing with a more secondary you know less rounded character here. I think that's true. Well, I mean the I was actually going to. To, to give a card horn I reading as well but you've, you've done it anyway so I don't need to do it because I yeah. wasn't going to just leave it at the ocean kind of level because I think that he does very much represent the the moving against character type because he sees life as a jungle and he has to he has to succeed he has to be victorious and yeah. there, there can even be vindictive trials because I think Essentially, him keeping the money and letting George go to the the wall is is a vindictive triumph for this man. Um, the way he looks at human beings are, are you know, is like vermin, creatures yes. to exploit, uh, really. But also, he's very wary of them because uh, he, he he's probably externalizing, as we discussed in the Card Horney episode. You know, people projecting aspects of their own psychology onto others so since he is so mercenary so ruthless and so greedy how could he trust others if he sees them in the light of his own psyche and that's why there'll be this being mob braying mob uh willing to uh take every last penny from him unless he 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 kind of keeps them under his thumb Really, that's a great point, and of course, insofar as he at any point in his life went any distance towards cultivating any kind of more affectionate elements of himself, it doesn't seem like he went far at all with that. But you know, these will be so repressed that they'll he'll simply be seeing neediness in others. You know, he won't be seeing genuine love. Actually, it'll just simply be they, they, they want to get one over. They, they they're weak, yeah. and you know, love and weakness are the same thing. Actually, for Potter, I think, aren't they really? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, what. What we really see, yeah, love is weakness for him. He has no affectionate ties. He has no family. This is something that Capra uh, makes clear, that he is a bachelor. He is without kids. He's without wife and kids. The only the only tie he has is actually the his servant, and we can see that that is not remotely close or affectionate or considerate yeah. in any way. In fact, actually, he just sees him solely as a servant, as a tool really there to to look after him. Uh, and, and that's as close as he gets to any other human being. So it very much puts it in perspective that this is a man without affectionate ties. Uh, what, what we can sort of see is that in a way, the battle between Potter and, and George is a, a battle of good and evil, but what I think it also is is the a battle between love and fear, mm, because okay. uh, what we see with Potter is a man um, that is that is essentially uh, consumed by fear, and uh, but because he has a a good brain on him in that sort of financial 
kind of sense uh, in a calculating way. Uh, what what he epitomizes is you know a calculated fear, somebody that's very shrewd in a sense, but also deeply fearful. And yes. uh, that that is how he looks at the world through that through a strategic lens. See, it's always strategic. That's very interesting. Yeah, because one that ties in actually. One kind of interesting psychological nuance I thought with Potter was that on the one hand, as you described, you know, he, he seizes the opportunity for vindictive revenge on George when the circumstances prevent themselves, and that's understandable given that George well understandable from Potter's point of view given that George has embarrassed him previously so he'll have cultivated that hatred but he's also actually willing to make George rich at a certain point um, mm -hmm. he, he offers him this job he's willing to, he doesn't have you know in, in a way his hatred of George is actually trumped by the strategic concerns there because if he can exactly. get total total control over say the housing and the banking um, sectors within the town he's willing to actually tolerate making George rich you know, so I thought that was quite an interesting kind of dynamic there. So, yeah, yes, I think, yeah. Um, I mean, exactly. His he is willing to uh, contain his contempt for George. Yeah. Uh, to gain a strategic advantage, it would be a little bit like a grandmaster giving away a rook in order to take somebody's queen, <laughs> yes. really, which is Bedford Falls, basically. Uh, so, yes, I mean, obviously, he has been. Not in a moral sense, but in a financial sense, he's been a very effective man. And I think that's where we see his effectiveness, that as contemptuous as he is towards George Bailey, he is willing to uh, offer him that money, that job, so that he can ultimately win Bedford Falls. Now, of course, George is tempted yes. uh, very briefly because George, as we know, is a somewhat conflicted man and maybe also... Potter uh, had had noticed that. He's, if he did, he certainly exploited it. But George ultimately, very quickly actually, realizes what he's doing. He knows he knows moral poison when he re when he sees it, and that is what saves Bedford Falls. Yeah, that I think that's that sums it up uh, perfectly. There, you're quite right. It's the, the the master chess player, the master strategist. Yeah, he comes up against this, you know. Yeah, this this man who is good, but but of course conflicted because he he's having to balance you know he's having to balance other people's needs with his own desires in a way that Potter simply simply doesn't. Um, and yeah, as you said, it, it, he is tempted, but only very briefly. And then as you know, as, as proves to be the case with George, he makes the right choice. Um, yes, yeah, I, so I was going to, I was going to sure, just mention yeah. a couple of other things regarding his psychology because sure. it ties in a bit with the Card Hornary aspect which is uh, Alfred Adler's idea about superiority uh, as well that, that he uh, that his view would was that every human being feels inferior and they then search out some means to compensate for that and they can do it in two different ways two fundamentally different ways pro-socially or anti-socially mm -hmm. and what we see with Potter is a great example of someone that has taken the anti-social route to compensating for uh, whatever perceived inferiority he felt he had and what what Adler said was that that route would be to triumph over others to see others as inferior to exploit them basically which was very different to the to the pro-social 
route. So yes, I mean yes. for therapists out there, they if they know Alfred Adler, they they can see you know Mister Potter as a, an Adlerian uh, case study in, yeah. in that way. Uh, the other thing I was just going to mention very briefly is Eric Fromm's idea of uh, having and being. Uh, you know, his great book, To Have or To Be. Yes. And one of the things that Froome had said was that the more that you're focused on acquiring material things, the less being that you would have. And what he essentially meant by that was that the more you identify with things, the more they own you, and the more you're kind of uh, constrained in what you could become. So in his view, it kind of created this inner void uh, there. And I think what we see with Potter is a great example of someone that has a lot, but his being is very poor. I mean, this is almost like a Fromian reading of what Capra is saying mm-hmm. in, in the movie. And it's really why Potter is a vampiric character, ultimately, preying off of the Bedford Falls, uh, capitalising on them, but not giving anything in return. He has nothing to give in return, actually, on a psychological and spiritual level. Yeah, I think that those readings work really well, actually, because there is on the one in terms of the the from point, there is that discontentment about him. He, he can't actually sit at ease on the fact he owns the vast majority of the town because yeah. there's still something he hasn't yet got, and and it's like there's nothing else motivates him in life. Actually, there's nothing else he can channel his energies in. Um, and I think also I thought that was a good point actually about the Adlerian and. and inferiority uh, complex and the antisocial route because obviously another striking thing about Potter is that he's not particularly concerned that people know what he's like you know he, he has these slums that are in terrible conditions he knows that people hate him and have contempt for him but he has contempt for them and it doesn't bother him actually he doesn't feel a need to try to look good actually it's more as you said the antisocial uh, triumph and the domination that that's the bottom line for him so so yeah I think those, yes, are, those yeah. are great uh, great links to draw there yeah excellent I, I think you're very right that he doesn't care about image no. uh, really maybe we're dealing with a period where uh, fame and notoriety the way that we know it and understand it didn't exist at that point. So he, he is happy to be the local villain as long as he is actually uh, the one that tries. But I suppose if you want to see it from his point of view, which is not a comfortable thing to think about, <laughs> sure. but if you want to th- see it from his point of view, they're all suckers anyway. So they're the, the more that they have contempt for me, the more I've succeeded. That would be his logic. Yes, I think that's true, isn't it? Yeah, he has so little respect for these people that yeah. whether they happen to like him or hate him as they generally do, it's a, it's a minor issue to him. He sees them as like insects in a way. He's that kind I of think detached does, yeah. from them. Yeah, Actually, he would want their liking because I think he would believe that he's done something wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and also he would trust it because he'd, he'd think it would be some strategic ploy to uh, get one over on him. Yes. Coming up 
coming next then to his his nemesis, as he would see it, um, George Bailey. Um, you know, obviously this is such a kind of remarkable character that people, you know, so many people have seen this film and loved it and, and think about this character as an almost exemplar of goodness. So the next question I thought could be interesting to consider in terms of thera- therapeutic value. How should To what extent should we actually try to be like George Bailey in our own lives? Is this a good model that people should be following, do you think? Well, I think it's the case that for most of us, we could take a leaf from George Bailey's book uh, because we have here almost the epitome, as far as realism could go anyway, almost the epitome of someone that is you know, tremendously generous and very kind yes. and very empathic. So it would be hard not to say that we could take a leaf out of George Bailey's book, most of us anyway, uh, because, you know, we all, I, I don't, here's me speaking for most people here, but I imagine that they, they do think that they could have been kinder, more, or more generous towards others. And George Bailey is a role model in many ways, uh, an ideal to, to look towards, not in that um, self-hating can horn I can no, say it, no 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 but a moral ideal um so to say that we should identify with them at all would be a, a great mistake I think um yep. but what I think would be equally a mistake and this is <laughs> this is uh difficult to talk about because this is the kind of thing that uh that that people re- or some people rage against critics for which is looking at a movie in uh, quite a sober and some t- and to some people's uh, point of view clinical way, um, okay, y- you know. But I don't want to be accused of being like Addison Dewitt from <laughs> All About Eve here. <laughs> but but I think that we also can't shouldn't completely identify with this character. There are difficulties here um, because you know having a a wonderful life isn't solely about giving. We have to be careful here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I mentioned this is that I do think I see quite a lot of clients who have been casualties to some extent of their own altruism. Uh, a wonderful life does involve giving, but it doesn't involve solely giving. I think that uh, we need to look at the the shadow side of the story to some extent, and we mustn't see our moral choices as a as a a decision to be either Bailey or Porter. Yes. I think it's much more nuanced than that in real life. So a couple of things I want to say uh, in general before looking at George himself is that, um, as, as you know, in real life, if we do good uh if if we do if we act in a good way towards others, if we help others, um, we might come across a thing known as ingratitude, <laughs> or we yeah. may indeed be exploited. Uh, what we see in this movie is a world where ingratitude and exploitation don't exist in Bedford Falls. Okay. You see, yeah. Uh, I mean, we see in Potter obviously a host of dislikable and morally reprehensible characteristics, but it's contained within this one character. Yes. Uh, Everybody in Bedford Falls uh, seems ideal, uh, seems appreciative, grateful 
towards George. It would be a mistake to to think that that's how it is in real life, unfortunately, because a lot of good goes unsung uh, and unappreciated. So the reason I'm underscoring this is that uh, I, I know a lot of people want to, to help others, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we also have to keep in mind how others treat us in return, and we can't expect them to be like the, the citizens of Bedford Falls. In reality, much as I regret to say this, uh, if we are altruistic in an unthinking, in a, in a, in a compulsive way, uh, what we might end up with is not a wonderful life, but a wasted life. Mm, and this yeah. is something that we have to, to bear in mind, uh, despite the, the very affirmative dimensions of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think that is, I think that's a really important point, actually. Although, as you said, yeah, it's kind of, you know, people like the, you know, the magic of these films and, and you know, there can be a sensitivity to that kind of um, way of looking at it. But I think it's, you know, what's clear about this film is that there is this religious perspective, which is very avert in yes. it. And to me, there is this underlying magical belief at play here or, or magical reality whereby goodness is rewarded you know george bailey is rewarded for his sacrifice by meeting his the perfect wife having wonderful caring neighbors and yeah i think that the reality as you've just been depicting is that altruism isn't always going to be recognized you know there isn't necessarily always going to be this kind of as there as we might feel there should be this automatic mechanism in nature whereby our sincere attempts at kindness are then met with kindness and appreciation in return so there is a problem there isn't there really where if, if a person absolutely you know just absolutely to, yeah just to try to be that follow the george bailey script there is no guarantee of a george bailey wonderful life result unfortunately it's it's, uh, it's magical no. thinking that really isn't it yeah. it is it is i mean it, because this movie as great as it is is a dream for the altruist yeah that's why it's so seductive and potentially dangerous on one level because it it, it, it uh, what happens to George at the conclusion of this movie is what every altruist would want uh, to be appreciated in that sincere way in that celebratory way um and but as you say that is unlikely in real life or it doesn't always happen if we're going to just put it in a euphistic uh, sort yeah. of way and I think I think a really key point to underscore here is that being moral isn't about... We mustn't equate being good with sacrifice. Uh, this is one of the problems I think you get more with that religious perspective, which is that the more you sacrifice, the more good that you are. Yeah. And I think that that is, uh, that is a mistake. Uh, the reason why it's a mistake is that other people aren't more important than oneself. I know that might sound a bit, uh, you know, ungenerous to say, but I think it's about respecting oneself as much as you respect others. And sac to sacrifice uh, yourself in this vision of the good could lead to a wasted life. It, it certainly doesn't lead to a life of self-actualization, which is another key part of morality of ethics and uh, there is a danger if you lived your life like George that you may actually not realize your own potentials in this in this movie that is sort of dealt with because George has got such a resounding 
level of appreciation that the fact that he didn't go off to college and develop himself in other ways is kind of then swept under the carpet. But in real life, we have a commitment to others and a commitment to ourselves, and we mustn't forget that. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is an extremely important point because, I mean, on the one hand, as you were as you were initially describing, we can take something from George Bailey, which is that it's absolutely right to reflect that when we're making choices in our life, we take into account the effect those have on others. So we make those choices, yeah. you know, yeah. not purely from a "this is what I want," so this is what I'm going to do perspective. So that's right. That's a good message. But but yeah, I mean, the reality is. George himself, you know, or, or a character like George in the real world, who's a good person, you know, also deserves. There, there's th- this idea that that he somehow needs to always sacrifice for others. That seems unfair to him. And you know, in in the real world, as you say, I mean, a, a person does have the right in their you know limited time on this planet to try to make a a good, satisfying life for themselves. And it's it would seem to be running a real risk of ending up actually quite a bitter, resentful person if you simply. Sacrifice sacrifice to others all the time and quash your own strong desires you know in, in his case say venturing out in the world having some exploration you know these are well i mean the exploration of course is one of the higher needs you, you mentioned maslow there that um kaufman mentions as as you know when when a person is in the, the realm of self-actualizing there is a bit of that in their life so fair enough there may be circumstances where the morally right thing to do is actually to put others first because your own in, in a particular case, it might be that your own preference is going to have too many, too many people will suffer if you're not there for them. But I, I think most people's lives don't go from these kind of critical moment to moments in the way that George does, whereby every self-interested choice equals disaster for the community. And so therefore it must always be sacrifice, sacrifice all the way. I think yes, that's not yeah. really the world that people are in. So that would be definitely, I would have thought, a, 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 a mistake for people to think. Just yes, I think like that's people. a very good point. One other thing, more general point I would also want to make here is that I was reading this interesting book by a sociologist called Zygmunt Bauman called Liquid Love. And what he was talking about in this book was the kind of relationships we have in post-modernity. And what, what he was saying is that in the modern world, people have a kind of ambivalent connection to others. Uh, The way he describes it is that we want to be connected, but on the other hand, we don't want to be too connected because it may become a burden, a tie, and and it might become something that that limits our freedom, our ability to move about uh, in a way that the modern world allows us to do. And I think he's got a point that... uh, the way that we relate nowadays is sadly more transactional and less committed than what the citizens of Bedford Falls would uh, would be like. Uh, so this is another thing that we have to keep in mind if we're trying to emulate George Bailey is that we are not of George Bailey's time. And what yeah. that may indeed mean is that, uh, that we act altruistically towards others, but others may not be much around in in many ways, and they may leave and things like that. So it's not as though we're going to get quite the, the celebration or recognition that George 
is good had had received. No, that that's that is a, a very important point as well. Actually, yeah, the 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 Bedford Falls world, and I think you know part of the maybe the the more escapist appeal of the film is the fact that it is so different to the world we find ourselves yes. in. Now, I think that's true. Another thing that occurred to me as well actually is that um, you know the way it's depicted in this film, whereby the absence of George means Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville. Um, I mean, you could say that, yeah, that, that there is something in the idea that certain exceptional individuals can be these community leaders, fair enough, and create these. But you could also conceive of a, a something akin to a Bedford Falls-like close-knit community actually being constructed if, rather than a few exceptional individuals, you know, the majority of the people there, to some degree, were able yeah. to live in a more balanced way, whereby they thought about their own needs, but also those of others. It yes, didn't just come yeah. down to a few sacrifices you know and obviously um, we, we again we've mentioned Maslow you know people can reach these higher needs mm. more the, the giving and the love and so on if their deficiency needs are met and obviously if you have a community where people are you know attentive enough to their own needs actually that they can meet those deficiency needs you could create something more you know close-knit and caring um, it, but it wouldn't just rely on on soul sacrificers actually I don't no. think that's maybe the way to realistically probably achieve that um, yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And because this is a movie, particularly a Hollywood movie, there has to be a protagonist. So there is a yes. an emphasis on the individual. But as you say, that distorts the message in some way. And I think that Capra would have advocated that in real life, more people try and be like George up to a point. Yes. Uh, anyway, but as you say, also looking out for themselves, but not in a Potter-like way, in a self-interested way, but not a selfish way, um, really there. So, yes, I think yeah. that that's a, a key thing to keep in mind as well uh, when assessing the movie and also its import on our on on our own lives. Yeah. Um, I, there. But, yes, I was going to move on to George's psychology oh, Please itself. do, yeah. Yeah. Um, here, you know, what I would call more the shadow side of it, because obviously if we watch the movie in a straightforward way, uh, we it, it could seem quite, yeah, quite simple, his psychology, that, that he, uh, he dedicates his life to Bedford Falls, uh, he then realises how much he's given to that community, and then he is celebrated in a time of need by that community that yeah. that is sort of the the most straightforward reading of the movie but i think if we look at his psychology a bit more closely we see a number of elements that that uh, indicate that we have to be a little bit wary about emulating george at least completely i mean one of them is that and this is uh, what drives a lot of the story is that he has a lack of confidence in his own goodness and his own good acts. Yeah. I mean, he call he calls his father the biggest man in town. He calls him a great guy when he's older, but George did not feel that about himself. And so, when he reaches that crisis point when the eight thousand dollars goes missing, uh, he doesn't remotely feel confident about his moral status. Instead, he is despairing and uh, immensely self-doubting. And that's why Clarence, as his guardian angel, has to arrive and show him actually how good he has been by indicating how life would have been without him. Yes. But he doesn't have remotely a clue 
about that. And this is something that I think is worth exploring about his psychology, that lack of confidence in his own goodness, uh, why that came about. Um, also, we see a, a tremendous degree of over-responsibility. Uh, it's as if he is entire. well, we know the way that the, the story is set up. It is like in reality that he he is the one person staving off Potter from the uh, from Bedford Falls becoming Pottersville. But he has this great over-responsibility, and we see this in the story, in that when the $8,000 goes missing, he doesn't pick up the phone and call any of his friends and call on them and ask them to help him. Uh, his wife does that. Yeah. But psychologically, that is not open to this man to do it. No. He also says at one point in that brilliant scene, Jimmy Stewart uh, uh, portraying it very, very well, George's despair. But when he prays to God, he says, you know, that he's not a praying man. He won't even lean on God generally mm. to help him. Yeah. So this this is a this is a man that has actually led quite a lonely life in a way of great independence and, and great sense of responsibility, too responsible. Uh, and he can't remotely ask anyone to help him out. Um, what we see from a Karen Hornay perspective is that he is that moving towards character. And as you know, what that would mean is that... Uh, his, his uh, chief virtue uh, or what chief ideal is to be as loving and as agreeable and as compliant as as he can be. And we see the compulsive nature of that with George because he cannot call on anyone to help him. Uh, that seems wrong. He is there to help others. Others are not there to help him. Yeah, I think so. I, that, that was exactly what was going through my mind there as you depicted that very, very well. I think that is that is absolutely what we see in his psychology actually on the one hand when he's you know the, the more youthful and he's more exuberant and he has these dreams you know you could mm -hmm. a, a Karen Horn I might construe that as his more expansive drives are at yeah. play and and so he has a bit of buoyancy yes. about him but of course what happens to the moving away type as we discussed in our last podcast moving again uh, sorry moving towards type as we discussed previously is that yeah this this repression of aggression and this this uh, you know veering towards altruism and giving inevitably results in a loss of confidence because you can't feel like a whole integrated individual if you've repressed the expansive drives within yourself so yeah. that is that is why i suppose it's implausible in a sense that that a life of just sacrifice after sacrifice in that way could lead to a truly happy person actually uh, you yes. know taking aside the kind of religious scenario that's built up here yeah precisely because they couldn't be an integrated self actually they haven't allowed the growth of the the other sides they're, they're too much stuck in the the people pleasing and i know that seems maybe seems very mean to describe george bailey as a people pleaser i think that's simplistic but nevertheless psychologically the moving towards type is a is a people pleaser actually and that is the well, compulsion you know true true well yeah. i mean i know that i know what you're saying that when we call the people pl pleaser it almost um makes them sound 
uh, ordinary and mundane, but there is an element of that in his character. I mean, one of the most significant aspects of this movie is that, and, and you know, it was only when I watched it recently that I noticed it, mm-hmm. which is that when Clarence shows him what life would be like if he had never lived, what we see is that George isn't able to take in that message. Instead, what we see him do is run up to people and and in despair that they don't recognize him. Uh, And what we see there is the nightmare of that moving towards type of non-recognition, of being a stranger to those that you love. That is his nightmare. So it's actually, because we see it in nightmarish form, we see one of the key motivations for George, which is recognition and helping those that you love. And so his nightmare is not to get that recognition. See, that's um, an interesting uh, point, that, because it, what, what's striking about that sequence is that, you know, from maybe a more modern perspective, the culmination of that nightmare sequence, you know, the idea that he discovers his wife is actually a librarian and an old yeah. maid. You know, this is kind of yeah. seen as this bombshell, <laughs> which could seem a bit funny in a way that that was yeah. the ultimate nightmare. But yeah, you're right. From a moving towards perspective, the failure of his you know, his wife, the person he loves the most, to see him and love him back is the ultimate nightmare, actually. So that is well, that is, is the bombshell yeah. for him there. Yeah, that's a really interesting I point. mean, it is with his wife, but it's the same with his mum. It's the same with the taxi driver. It, it is his, it's his nightmare not to be recognised by the people that he cares about, which is the community and also his family. Yeah. And, and I think this also explains why when he is in that very tight spot with the money going missing, why it it lunges him into despair. Because what he imagines is that the the population, the citizens of Bedford Falls, will be accusatory towards him. And so it's like that he is no longer loved and he'd rather die than have that love withdrawn from him. And so we could see one of the dangers about being compulsively altruistic in that, as you say, you have to quell your expansive drives, your drives to become a more substantial self through achievement. You have to uh, quell them. But we also see that um, how it is with, uh, you know, his family and with uh, Bedford Falls in general, Uh, really there. Um, Well, that would explain, wouldn't it, why when he goes to Potter in his moment of desperation... And Potter suggests that, as he, as I mentioned, the rabble, what will, you know, he's cynical about whether they would yeah. dare help George. You know, yes. George would be influenceable in that sense because he Absolutely. would share, he would share, wouldn't he, from that compulsive perspective, scepticism and doubt about others, about the, the genuineness of their care, precisely because if, he's, if he was too much stuck in that moving towards position, he couldn't really have a, a faith in others, actually, or yes, himself. Exactly. You know, entirely, entirely, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, this is what I was thinking as well which is that it's not something that I've ever read elsewhere or people talking about but yes unfortunately George does lack a degree of faith in the goodness of other people and as you say Potter articulates his doubts for him to some extent that's the function of Potter is that he articulates George's despised self 
or what, how George fears that he really is like. Yes. You know, when Potter says, you know, it's, you're nothing but a clerk or something like that, you could almost see that as George's estimation of himself when he's in his most self-hating of moods. And when Potter says about the mob that they won't bail him out, again, I think they're articulating his own doubts on some level, and that's why he goes off to kill himself. Well, and, and of course, going to Potter... N- you know, knowing as he does what kind of person Potter is, there's something quite masochistic there. You know, it's like it's a, it's it's almost giving himself hate an opportunity to punish himself by going to the yes. man that is the cruelest, stingiest man in town. Although he is the man with money, he, you know, he, he knows what Potter is, but yet he goes there, yeah, rather than um, you know, to to his friends actually, which is which is interesting. Well, um, exactly. It seems almost perverse, doesn't it? But. But I think that what it comes down to is that uh, he can believe and trust in getting a loan from Potter, whereas to reach out for his friends, that's almost like going against his sense of what is right, because he helps them. They don't help him. This is the problem about being overly altruistic, is that it it's, doesn't work the other way. And as yeah. as you said, he lacks that faith in others to some extent too. So he avoids that and he rushes to what would have otherwise been his uh, his doom Yes, really there. I think what's really important here though is that we look at as much as we can why that's happened really. Why is there that void, that lack of faith sure. in him? And I think one of the reasons for that is that if you're compulsively altruistic up to a point is that it hollows out the self because you have you have sidelined your own needs you've squashed them in a way you've suffocated them through this compulsive altruism and so you really you don't call upon your own needs you don't recognize them uh, or if you do, you certainly don't see them as important as other people. And so in a kind of, you know, perverse way, you turn yourself into a tool for others. You are a means to their end. That is your purpose. You, there is a somewhat dehumanizing element there because your purpose is there for others. They are not there for you. Well, that's fine if you're a hammer, yeah. but not a human being. Well, exactly. Yeah. And it is, of course, the dark side of, of that kind of compulsive altruistic temperament is just, yeah, that that inability to have a more straightforward, affectionate and mutual connection with others, actually, because you need to feel a certain amount of self confidence you need a certain amount of faith in yourself to then have the faith in others because you can't believe they could have faith in you if you feel hollow i i I guess in that sense so yeah it's it's a kind of um vicious circle actually there that 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 compulsive altruistic type would be stuck in actually which is so damaging well that Um, that's it i mean as karen horn wrote about the moving towards type fears the other the people that they help um, yeah. So in a way, the altruism is a, and as far as the altruism is compulsive, it is a, a form of appeasement, really. Yes. Yes. So while George trusts the people of Bedford Falls quite a lot more than Potter does, he still lacks a degree of faith in them. And unfortunately for him, that lack of faith 
is more toxic, more dangerous than Potter's lack of faith, at least in terms of his life. Well, indeed, uh, culminating, of course, in, yeah, the, the, the attempt, you know, suicide attempt, which yeah. obviously um, is, you know, it's divine intervention, literally, that, that prevents this. So this is not a good state for this man to be in, who ostensibly has a wonderful wife, has these wonderful children, of course, has had a terrible dilemma in his life and he, and he fears the consequences of that but but yeah it does seem like not the reaction of somebody who's who is actually a balanced stable self that that you know no that that choice there to just throw it all away but potentially to throw it away well no um, and um as you know from reading carnhorn i the moving toward type is more likely to try to commit suicide than the moving against type, which yes, is Potter. Of course. Um, so, yeah, they are more is, endangered yeah. in that way. Uh, and when he sees that nobody recognizes him, acknowledges him in bed for falls, when he has that dark night of the soul, that yeah. is his nightmare really. Um, of course, the nightmare in reality was that he was going to get a form of recognition that was tremendously unwanted, which was that uh, the citizens of Bedford Falls would come uh, and accuse him of misappropriation of funds. That yes. was the, Of course, he, he didn't realise that the people of Bedford Falls knew him intimately yeah. and, and, and trusted his goodness. But he himself lacked a faith in that goodness. And that will be partly because that goodness had a compulsive aspect to it. It'll be also because he was such an exceptional human being that the goodness came so easily to him. And so he probably didn't acknowledge how, uh, how exceptional it actually was. Yeah, too. I think so. final issue we're going to discuss here which you've just mentioned there this this lovely scene at the end this very moving moment where you we see this extreme generosity of these friends and neighbors coming to george's rescue and um, you alluded there to his outstanding qualities and people perceiving this uh, the these things in him so do you think that this gesture of altruism at the end is primarily due to George's popularity or his likability, or would you think that there might be other factors at play that would explain why everybody came en masse to his rescue? Well, I'm going to do that typical uh, critic thing of bursting the party balloons, as uh, as it's often seen. Okay. And, uh, well, I mean, not quite. I'm obviously being you know facetious overall but um this it is a it is a moving scene it is a great conclusion to a great movie but i think again if we're talking about it in the way that we have over the last hour that we have to acknowledge that it had to end in that way because it is a a moral conclusion to a moral, a morality tale. So it had to be very emphatic to prove that George's life had not been in vain. Yes. Um, it was also a psychological resolution for George because, as we said, his nightmare was not being recognised or valued at all by those that he loved. And this is the precise opposite. This is the dream yes. of uh, the family... 
the cities, the friends, the acquaintances all being around and singing all lang syne. That is his dream. Yeah. And it is a moral and psychological resolution to the whole story. Um, it is so powerful that it obviously overlooks the complexities that we've discussed yes. that are actually in this story. Sure. Uh, it, it sweeps them away in a triumph of emotion. Um, does that mean it's sentimental? I won't even go into that because we're probably going to lose Twitter followers <laughs> if we start crit- critiquing it in that way. Yes. But I think, yes, it did have to end in that emphatic way to to prove that George's life had not been in vain and also Capra's moral vision is the good and the right way to be. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, Well, how about this? So maybe just... Uh you know, take a slightly different angle on it then. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this. A more popular angle. <laughs> a popular, of course, yeah. I'm going to try and retrieve it there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, I do I don't, I do agree with, with, with your take there. I was just thinking as well that, we, you know, w- what we could say is that, you know, most people who are decent would have it in them to do that for a friend, although they at times won't do that, but most people have it in them. And I was thinking you could say that, you know, some you could have a kind of coalescing of circumstances which can bring out that kind of mass kindness. Um, I mean, it occurred to me that there is a kind of modern day equivalent here whereby you will often have a maybe a, a story that's promoted on social media about somebody who's had a terribly unfortunate bit of luck in their life or, or is doing something really exceptionally kind. And it, and it moves people and you'll get these, these um, you know, donations whereby lots of money will be raised in a short time mm. for that person. So people do quite enjoy actually having an opportunity to channel the the part of them that likes to give and likes to be good and sometimes there can just be a sort of a moment that captures people's imagination and it's being shared and it's being discussed so there could be a kind of you know reciprocal influence going on there where like-minded people and friends all really get into the spirit of that kind of moment of real uh, kindness Um, and of course there's also the fact that in these kind of smaller close-knit communities there could be the norm of looking after each other actually Mm -hmm. where people do Mm -hmm. face you know, financial hardship often and survive by the way that mm. they pull together. And again, it seems yeah. a wee bit like George has overlooked that kind of obvious fact about these communities, that that's how the community's built. You know, there are the, the you know, the figures like the shark, the potter out there, but everybody mm. else survives by pulling together. So you, I, I thought that maybe you could, it could be read in a sense is that, you know, we, we all do have those higher needs in us. They can be roused in certain moments and um, people who maybe are more, secure you know from a maslow point of view their deficiency needs are more met you know could be more easily roused to that moment a mass generosity you know i i guess that that could be one way to maybe maybe you know offer a kind of explanation that could account for that kind of action rather than it just being a kind of you know purely purely in terms of it's kind of being a sort of sentimental emotional conclusion as well um yeah well i mean that that's a good point that there are there are those people that are altruistic that help each other, as you say, parts of uh, small communities or online. Uh, as we know, in America, those that don't have health insurance often rely on crowdfunding and yeah, people do indeed. help out. So, of course, there, there's that. Maybe the reason why I was a bit more cautious in, in how I read it was that I was thinking about it in terms of things like family and real life and things like that, that, uh, that uh, families don't bandy together necessarily as uh, lovingly as is portrayed in that movie. But I think you're right when it comes to 
to friends or even acquaintances that that altruism does exist, of course. Um, but I, what I was just a, a bit cautious about was how how easily it comes in that movie. Obviously, we're swept yes. away by the emotional logic of the of the movie. Uh, but just because I was thinking about it more from that mental health perspective and uh, you know aware of how some people have been so altruistic but so unrewarded as well, particularly in families. Um, I mean, that's one of the, the ironies here is that I think, yeah, friends and acquaintances or even strangers can bandy together and um, support a person in that kind of way, but families often struggle to do so. I, I, I agree. And that that's, I think, um, in those kind of, scenarios that i was i was maybe pitching there i think you know what what i what i really meant was that it is quite an exceptional moment it is yeah it isn't something we see that often although we do see examples of it so yeah i guess it was it was kind of intriguing that what you know what could the ingredients be that realistically might make that mass yeah. generosity take place and i think you're right i think that the, the sad reality is of course you know sometimes people miss moments where they could you know they don't and again from a from a maslow point of view about their own needs you know uh, it, it is a growth as a growth need we have to give and be kind to others that that you know yes. there's no doubt we many people suffer from a dearth of it both in terms of what they're able to give or what they they get at their moments yes. of need yeah. you know that's, yeah. that's certainly yeah true you know, I, I think no i think like what we're both trying to do is uh strike a ba- balance between um a sentimental outlook and a misanthropic one, obviously. Yes, exactly. and, and that the truth lies somewhere between those two perspectives. And yes, it is an exceptional moment in the movie and it would be an exceptional moment, no doubt, in real life when the, these things happen. Uh, but yes, it's not something that we can necessarily count on. Um, no. I mean, I, I suppose why... I'm emphasising this as, I mean, if we mention Karen Hornay again, actually, that, that she talks about the kind of um, unwritten pacts that people make with destiny uh, in her book Neurosis and Human Growth. Okay, yeah. I'm sure you recall that. that yeah. And what she means by that is that, you know, peop- some people could have this view that if they're altruistic, if they're very giving then life will and fate will reward them in return. And and of course you could see that with some people that when they give, they've got an expectation of getting at least something, some recognition. Yes. And that may not happen and that could be deeply painful as well. Well um to them. I, I yeah, I, I think I think that's the point, isn't it? I think that, you know, this is a great this is a great movie, but there is a sort of there are a few mental health warnings actually that are that are maybe useful to accompany it. Not because we want to be cynical, as you said, or misanthropic or anything like that, actually, but just because that it is dangerous. It is dangerous, and many people suffer from you know an, an attempt to be too altruistic and and to think that that will solve their problems and 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 actually get them what what they really want in life. Yes. And that is actually you know a wrong-headed approach that could be very damaging, you know. So we, we just have to caution against that. I, I think, think really, so, don't yeah. I mean, it's not as though we're saying that it necessarily has to come with a, a government health warning on the DVD. <laughs> but but it is the case that um, there is a strong temptation in human nature to take people for granted if 
someone is too kind to them. Yeah, and this is something that uh, my good man Pinter uh, <laughs> portrayed brilliantly in the Caretaker. Yes, uh, yeah. which uh, which we see in that in that play that Davis the Tramp is taken in by Aston. That the, there is this act of generosity, and it's clear that that Davis could stay. Uh, provided he behaved himself, but unfortunately Davis is riddled with ingratitude and he he despises Aston and he ends up trying to align against Aston and ends up getting kicked out of the house and is homeless again. But we but we can see there that uh, yeah, kindness isn't always. Uh, rewarded in in kind no. there and and I do think there is a tendency in human nature to take for granted kindness if especially if it becomes routine uh like a george um, um yes really there uh, it could become very routine and expected um so that th- that I think is one of the main um warnings if you want to put it that way that we have to give here i think so um you just gave me that you know the fascinating idea that you know if pinter had rewritten it's a wonderful life what kind of film would it have been um which is quite a <laughs> quite a thought but um, i but just yeah, don't i just yeah i just don't think there'd be any guardian angel um in no. in, uh, in in pinter's rewrite of uh, it's a wonderful life no i really. don't think there'd so. be a lot of pauses and menace and uh power uh, yeah. games <laughs> <laughs> uh, really there but it would not be the world that, that Capra depicted no. and, I, and I think what we're kind of saying if I know this sounds a bit strange but I think what we're kind of saying is that um, the world is so complex and multifaceted that there are Capra-like elements to life and there's also Pinteresque elements to life and that's why we should try and be as good as we can be as people but we have to keep our wits about us yeah, it's true. I mean, ultimately, it is, it, you know, despite the, the, the health warnings and the critique that we've maybe offered there, it, you know, this is a fantastic film. And, and you're right. I mean, there's no question that it's it's uplifting because it's resonating with something in us, actually. This is a part of us, uh, you know, the part that really recognises and is, is warmed by goodness. So that's there. I think you're right. But of course, yeah, there wasn't really room for the, the Pinteresque, I mean, we have Potter, of course. We have a kind of, as you described, a more one-dimensional out-and-out villain there. But, of course, Pinters Pinters doesn't really quite do villains like that. His are more, you know, again, they're more nuanced and they're more complex, you know, and and obviously... um, As is life, of course, you know, that that, that is, you know, the the Pinterest as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what Capra's depicted is how people could be spiritually rich and what Pinter depicted in his great plays is how we could be spiritually impoverished. Yes. Really. And yep. um and, and I have to say, I know that I wrote my thesis on Pinter, so maybe I'm a bit biased here, but I have to say <laughs> that what we have to keep in mind is that unfortunately it's easier to be impoverished in that regard than to be rich. To be rich in that way requires effort and wisdom really yes yes i think so i think that's yeah i think that is the 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 slight limitation with the 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 capra world in this film you know that the this kind of standout single villain where in a way there's more kind of mundane selfishness of a potter-esque type 
you know, operating um, in the everyday. It's it's not really so much. It's a kind of more black and white world there of, of well, I mean, as, the bad. Well, it is. It is, I'm afraid. And I, as I walk home tonight and look around, I don't think I see Bedford Falls. It seems closer to Pottersville, mm. really. Yeah. And so we have yeah. to bear in mind about what what is easier to be and what might be winning in a lot of ways. Yes, exactly, exactly. So on that upbeat note. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is why, you know, Pinter is less popular at Christmas time than... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah. I mean, not many people sit down and, and, and watch a Pinter play, uh, or, you know, on Christmas Day. No. You might argue that some poor people don't need to. It's at the actual table, but that's another well, story. Well, indeed, indeed. But yes... <laughs> But no, I think um, yeah. So you know, in spite of of all the 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 myriad of health warnings, you know, it is it is still a great movie, and I do I do actually love uh, Capra's films. I think this is actually you know one of the best films of that period. Actually, yes, it's a wonderful yeah. Life. I think I, th- I think you would underscore that we still think it's a great movie, <laughs> just in case people were in doubt. But it should be. No, um, no, 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 no. It is a great movie, and it's got a great message. But we are just adding some qualifications to it and we're adding them just to to help people as much as they can with their lives exactly exactly i think so no i, th- I think there is a there, it might seem a bit perverse that a kind of you know a more realist type reading of the film could could have a kind of ethical agenda to you know behind it but i think that is what we're, we're trying to do here we're not trying to sour something that people love um it's no, no, really no, about no, no, trying no, to help no. people yeah, have a have a, yeah. a, a world view that's going to be good for them. Actually, that's going to help. Well, I mean, them make if, the right if people, yeah, if people thought that kind of critique sullied it, so it spoiled it for them, then I think they've been looking at it too sentimentally. Because I think the goodness that Capra believes in and depicts has a has a genuine quality to it, and it can survive our our critique yes. as we wanted it to. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. Well, um, I guess we can we can leave it at that. I think we've, okay, we've covered a lot, you, of, a lot of ground there, Alex. So thank you very much again, as always. Thank you. Thank you.